0: All right, if you would, let's uh, take our Bibles and turn together to the book of Daniel tonight. There's a natural historical progression in your Old Testament. If you think back over the last few weeks and our studies together, Isaiah uh, foretold and in part preached out of the coming of God's judgment against the people of Judah Uh, the, The judgment of God was to come against Judah, having failed to heed the warning of the fall of Israel in the north. Jeremiah preached through the fall of Judah and the city of Jerusalem, warning first that the judgment of God would come through the Babylonians. The people of Jerusalem and Judah at large resisted that word initially, but sure enough, as Jeremiah had promised, the judgment of God came. And the people of Israel were carried away into captivity. Uh, We looked specifically at Jeremiah chapter 29. That's the passage from which that verse we often uh, remember. I have plans for you to give you future and, and hope. We looked at that. That chapter is actually Jeremiah's letter to the captives. And in that letter, Jeremiah says, in essence, you're going to be living as foreigners, as strangers in Babylon. And he gives them instruction as to how they are supposed to live as strangers, as pilgrims in captivity. And we drew comparisons between the situation experienced by the people of Israel in the Babylonian captivity and our experience as followers of Christ in this world. This world is not our home nor was Babylon the home of the people of Israel. But the command of God for the Israelites was to pursue the peace and prosperity of Babylon. In other words, to be salt and light in Babylon, in spite of the strangeness of that place, in spite of the perversity of that land. They were to pursue the peace and prosperity of that place. They were to multiply. They they were to go about life. They were, in essence, to live even while strangers and pilgrims. The New Testament picks up on this language and reinforces that that idea is just the idea that God intends for us to glean from those passages. In 1 Peter, Peter begins his letter to those pilgrims of dispersion by referring to them as strangers or pilgrims in exile, a direct reference to the experience of the people of Israel in their Babylonian captivity. In the book of Lamentations, we reflected on the heaviness, the weight of God's judgment against the land of Jerusalem. We found the prophet Jeremiah sitting in a city now destroyed, in a heap of ashes, lamenting the plight of his people, the destruction of the city, and even the fall of the temple. In last week's, pass- in last week's lesson, we looked at the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel prophesized within that same time frame during the Babylonian captivity most of the time prophesying from the city of Jerusalem, but spending time in what's described as uh, the, the Kedar Valley, spending time in Babylon. Ezekiel is operating both in Israel and in Babylon, encouraging the people to keep the faith, explaining to them why this terrible judgment has befallen them. Now in the book of Daniel, we have the privilege of walking with Daniel, an individual who was a part of that Babylonian captivity, an individual who honored God in the midst of his Babylonian captivity, who did just what God prescribed for him to do in pursuing the peace and the prosperity of Babylon, even as a stranger and an exile. Daniel provides for us something of a pattern for what it looks like to be a stranger, to be a foreigner, to be an exile, and to walk faithfully with our God. I'm not sure that those kinds of connections are always drawn when we turn to the book of Daniel, but I'm convinced that the reason this book is so endearing to us, why for so many of us our favorite Bible stories come from the book of Daniel, is because it's intended to parallel our our experience here. Citizens of Another Kingdom, strangers and sojourners. This world is not our home, but God has given certain prescriptions for us as to how we're to conduct ourselves so long as we have our sojourn here. I've given you just a brief outline in your uh, handout tonight for the book of Daniel. By brief, there are just two lines there. The narrative section of Daniel in chapters 1 through 6, which we'll spend our time with tonight, and then the visions and prayers of Daniel chapter 7 through 12. At some point in our overview series, we're going to hunker down into some of these apocalyptic or symbol heavy passages and deal with their significance. But in looking tonight at the first half of Daniel, we're going to have a chance to do just a touch of that together. There is a certain literary structure to the book of Daniel. This will probably not be of interest to some of you, but for some of you this will be of great interest. I I wish you would begin to look for these things as you read the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. Biblical writers love this pattern. It's called a chiastic structure. It's called that because of the Greek letter chi. It looks like the X in the English alphabet. In good English writing, your, your main thought in the paragraph comes in the first sentence and it's summarized again in the last. I made it through college, reading the first and last sentence of every paragraph in the books I had to review. It's not a bad practice, and if the author's any good, it will work out really well for you if any of you are students or need advice to give your youngster as to how to survive high school and college. But in Hebrew writing, the main point is in the middle, not the beginning or the end. And often, each paragraph will be structured like that. And then even the book itself is structured like that so that all of the focus is being drawn to a single passage within that book. For instance, in the book of Daniel, in chapter 2, you have a vision of four kingdoms and their destruction. In chapter 7, which parallels chapter 2, you have a vision of four kingdoms and their destruction. In chapter 3, you have uh, a description of the faithfulness and, uh, of God's people and a miraculous rescue. In chapter 6, the faithfulness of Daniel and a miraculous rescue. Fixed between those parallel sections come chapters 4 and 5, where, where judgment is predicted against Nebuchadnezzar and ultimately experienced by Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 5, judgment predicted against Belshazzar, who follows after Nebuchadnezzar, and experienced by Belshazzar. We're able to deduce from this outline or this structure of the book of Daniel that at a minimum, the goal of chapters 1 through 7 is to reinforce the notion, even as we observe the pattern of Daniel's life and we see what it looks like to live as an exile in a strange and foreign land, That the foundational, the central message of the book of Daniel is that ultimately God will judge the nations. Now think about how central that message must have been for Daniel's generation. You had Israel that had fallen in the north. You had Judah that had fallen in the south. And both of those nations were comprised of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were the chosen people of God. Now, there can be no mistaking that the northern tribes of Israel had gone astray. They wandered far from God. And there can be no mistaking that in their own right, the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin in the south, they had themselves gone astray. And as a result, God had brought judgment against them. But consider who God used to bring judgment against them. He he, he used the Assyrians to bring judgment against the north a pagan, bloodthirsty people, and he used the Babylonians to bring judgment against the south, a pagan and bloodthirsty people. And the people of Israel are left looking around going, God, I know I messed up, but at least I didn't do anything like the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And what God seems to be explaining in the book of Daniel, and it happens elsewhere, is that, that, yes, for now, Babylon and Assyria have been the sword in my hand in exacting judgment against my people, for whom God loves, he chastens. But make no mistake about it, just because those nations aren't named among the chosen tribes of Israel, God will ultimately bring judgment against them. God judges the nations. God's activity in human history has not been reduced to his chosen people. God is not only at work within the church in our day, but even in pagan people's lives. Even those wicked politicians that you hate to see prosper. They are clay in the potter's hands and God's will will ultimately and finally be done. Nations that you see as the exact opposite of what God would want from a nation who set themselves up as the direct enemy of God's people, they are clay in the potter's hands. God will ultimately and finally judge all of the nations, not some of the nations, but all of the nations, and a sort of an undercurrent of of theological truth that runs from Daniel 1 through its conclusion in chapter number 12 like we've done with other books, I've identified some key passages here, four key passages from the book of Daniel to help us get an idea of what Daniel is about, to understand something of the essence of the book itself. The first is in chapter two. Now, what you've missed in chapter one, if you're not familiar with the book of Daniel, I suspect it's several of you, and if not most of you are, Daniel has been carried away. Daniel has been selected from among the exiles as one with great potential. Uh, Looks seem to be a part of that. You want handsome men as a part of your court. And so Daniel is chosen for his looks and for his apparent wisdom. He distinguishes himself in chapter 1 as one with an excellent spirit commits himself to the ways of God. The Bible says that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's food. There's a real crossroads in Daniel's experience in Daniel chapter one. Will I take the king's food Food that has been defiled by being offered to pagan gods, or will I stick with the water and vegetables that would keep me uh, in, in, it, that would allow for me to honor the food laws and commands of God uh, from the law of God in the books of Moses? Daniel sticks to his convictions, and God honors that by prospering Daniel further. In chapter two, we're introduced a little closer to a man named a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in Daniel chapter 2, and the dream that he experiences and the images and symbols associated with that dream um, are pretty characteristic of what you see later in the book of Daniel, specifically in chapters 7 through 12. So the king has a dream, and he calls for the magicians and the sorcerers and the mediums, mediums of Babylon to come and to tell the dream. But he is so struck by this dream So convinced of its crucial importance to his life, he wants to ensure himself that the interpretation of the dream he receives is accurate. So what he does is really genius, right? He says, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You're going to have to tell me the dream. And if you can tell me what the dream is, then I'll know for certain that you're able to interpret accurately what the dream really is. It's kind of like you go into the palm reader booth, the tarot card booth. We used to go and share the gospel in the tarot card booths on Jackson Square in New Orleans. And the first thing they ask you is, what's your name? Well, why don't you tell me what my name is? This is your business, you know. Tell me what my name is. And and, uh, this is sort of the trick that Nebuchadnezzar pulls here in our passage. Obviously, the mediums, the sorcerers, the wise men of Babylon are not able to tell the dream and they're certainly not able to tell an interpretation of the dream. So in chapter 2, verse 12, the Bible says, because of this, the king became violently angry and he gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. The decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed and they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute them. Now, they're looking for Daniel and his friends because Daniel and his friends are counted among the wise men. Not mediums, not sorcerers, not magicians, but they are numbered among the wise men. Daniel hears this report, and the Bible says in verse 14, he responded with tact and discretion to Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, who'd gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. Now, Daniel begins to pray. And Daniel prays, beginning in verse 20, May the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with Him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my Father, because you've given me wisdom and power And now you've let me know what we ask of you, for you have let us know the king's mystery. Now Daniel is abundantly clear, even as he prays and asks for insight into this dream and its interpretation, that the ability to interpret dreams does not lie with Daniel. The same can be said of Joseph of Genesis, who interpreted, and it lies with God. It was that God was pleased to grant this insight to Joseph in Genesis, and is now pleased in Daniel chapter 2 to grant this special insight to Daniel as well. So in verse 24, the Bible says, "'Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He came and said to him, "'Don't kill the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will give him the interpretation.'" Ariok quickly brought Daniel before the king and said, I found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. And the king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to tell the dream I had and its interpretation? Listen to Daniel's response. No wise man, medium, diviner, priest or astrologer is able to make known the ki- to the king the mystery he asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries And he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Now, the dream's interpretation, the dream and its interpretation, is given beginning in verse number 31. Look there. My king, as you were watching, a colossal statue appeared. That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold, its chest and arms were silver, Its stomach and thighs were bronze, its legs were iron, and its feet were partly iron and partly clay. This is where um, the the language of having feet of clay comes from. I was reading a work of fiction just this past week, and there was a conversation going back and forth between a son who had uh, discovered some troubling things about his father and an an elder responded to him or or spoke to him about this revelation and said, no man likes to discover that his father has feet of clay. In in other words, no man likes to discover that the man that he's seen to be a person of great power and strength, a person of righteousness, is himself at his portrait that the king sees. Now I'm going to share with you some bits of what this symbolizes for us in just a moment. But I, I think historically and within the context of uh, Daniel 2, it's relatively clear. In verse 34, the Bible continues, As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired, and fired clay and crushed them. The iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth." Now, I'll just give you some little insights here about what this symbolizes. Some of this is cleared up for us later, but I I want you to get the progression through history that's being described here so that we're able to celebrate in the end the imagery of that great stone that brought the empires of the world down. Daniel's going to help us to know, he says with certainty, that the gold head is symbolic of Babylon. The gold head is Babylon, that great kingdom. And you can see these kingdoms come and go through history. Babylon is followed by the Persian Empire or the Medo-Persian Empire. It's more Persian than Mede, but it's often referred to in your history books as the Medo-Persian Empire. And that ch- the chest and arms of silver is symbolic of that Persian Empire. The stomach and thighs of bronze are symbolic of the Greek empire that followed after the Medes and the Persians. And those iron legs and clay feet are symbolic of the Roman Empire. This is just a natural historical progression. New Testament time interpretations of the book of Daniel affirm this understanding of the book of Daniel. There's no mystery here. It's unfolded for us in biblical history so that we have precise insights into what was intended by this image. Now, you have this great statue, the gold head, silver shoulders, the bronze belly, the iron legs, and the feet of clay. And at once a stone is dropped, that shatters the clay feet of this great statue, and all of the statue comes tumbling down. It is ground to dust under this great stone and blown away like the chaff at the summer threshing floor. And all that remains is this great stone, and it becomes a mountain, and the Bible says that it fills the whole earth. In verse 36, Daniel says, this was the dream. Now we'll tell the king its interpretation. Your majesty, you are... King of kings, the God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory wherever people live, wild animals, birds of the air. He's handed them over to you and made you ruler over all of them. You are the head of gold. After you, there will rise another kingdom inferior to yours, and then another kingdom, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. A fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron crushes and shatters everything like iron that smashes. It will crush and smash all the others. You saw the feet and toes, partly of a potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay, and that the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong and part of it brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The peoples will mix with one another, but will not have come and gone. When the, Persian, when the Babylonian Empire has fallen, when the Persian Empire has fallen, when the Greek Empire has fallen, in the days of the fall of the Roman Empire, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. This dream is true, and its interpretation is certain. Now what has been described here is the coming of our Lord Jesus and the birth of a kingdom that does not belong to this world. It is the great stone that crushes every earthly empire making a vast mountain in the world, filling the whole earth. It is a kingdom that will never end, ruled by a king that will never cease to rule, the true king of all kings and the true Lord of all lords. This is the imagery of Daniel chapter 2. And the imagery here is similar, by the way, to the imagery of later Daniel chapters 7 through 12. Again, remember that there is this underlying theological theme that God will judge the nations, It may seem at the moment that Babylon has skated on the judgment of God, but there is coming a day when the great stone of God crushes every earthly kingdom. This kingdom that we have now and yet is to come will overthrow every earthly throne. Jesus will rule eternally as the king over all kings. This is, in essence, the message of Daniel chapter 2. Now, in Daniel chapter 3, there's a passage that you're probably more comfortable with and maybe even more familiar with. In in chapter 3, the Bible says that King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province, province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judge, magistrates, and all rulers of the province to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. They stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down in worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Now we've got problems, right? We have Nebuchadnezzar establishing a decree that's in direct violation to everything God requires of his people. We have living in that land people who have devoted themselves to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who has said through the prophet Moses that they are to make no graven image in the likeness of him, that they are themselves not to bow the knee to images of stone or wood, idols such as Nebuchadnezzar has set before them. And there are some among the Babylonians that know full well the problem that this must create for those Jews that live among them. In verse 8, the Bible says that some Chaldeans, that is Babylonians, took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They say in verse 12, There are some Jews you've appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you. The king, they don't serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you've set up. Then a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue that I've made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? See, the problem with being people in exile, the problem with being pilgrims and strangers in a foreign land is that the foreign land has a culture that is different than our own. You better get accustomed to the reality that even the great United States of America has a culture that is different than our own. The sooner you're able to see that, to recognize the inconsistencies and the contrast the better off you're going to be. And the more you're able to see those contrasts, those points of tension and conflict between the culture of our country and the culture of our Savior, the more often you're going to be aware of the many ethical and spiritual predicaments that are created for us by virtue of our having residence in a strange and foreign land. Now everyone's doing it, right? And the response of The response, I think, of many Christians under similar circumstances today would be, well, we won't be worshiping in our heart. And we are, after all, avoiding certain death. Would it do a great deal of harm if we just bowed and pretended to worship the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had established for us? If we just find a way, maybe there's a middle road where we can accommodate the expectations of Nebuchadnezzar and stay in the good graces of our God. And there's really just no way to do it. You you simply cannot love this world and, and walk in the light as he is in the light. You just can't do it. There's just no way to do it. There are no fence, goat, fence, sheep, goat, fence walking hybrids in the kingdom. There's just sheep and goat, right? There's just wheat and chaff. You're either in or you're out. Jesus said, either you're for me or you're against me. Whether whether our life is on the line or something far less significant is on the line, the question before us is, are we in or are we out? And the question was before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in some very real ways and tangible ways. There's a blazing fiery furnace out there. And Nebuchadnezzar has challenged them Who is the God who can rescue you from this fiery furnace? In verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he doesn't rescue us, we want you as king to know that we'll not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. Now, we like this story because God does rescue them from the fiery furnace. And maybe it wouldn't have the traction it does in our hearts if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been consumed by them. that. The conviction of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was that regardless of the outcome, whether we are burned up in the furnace or saved alive, God is still God. And I just got to tell you the dreadful news tonight that more times than not, it is, it is the pleasure of God that he would not intervene in such miraculous ways. There are far more Christians, it seems, in the history of Christendom that are consumed by the fiery furnace than there are those who are rescued out. But our hope and our joy, again, is not here. It's not here. The whole, the whole Sunday morning, beatitude Sermon on the Mount, upside-down kingdom, completely different worldview. Our hope is fixed elsewhere. Yes, the kingdom has come, but it is yet to come. Our hope is not here. And if you can ever master that, and I'm not sure that we ever truly master that in this experience. Maybe that's a part of of what it is to walk into the kingdom when we're finally able to see, not with eyes of faith, but with eyes of sight, what heaven holds forth for us. Maybe then we become masters of this concept, but we have to constantly teach ourselves, remind ourselves, beat it into our brains and deep into our hearts. This world is not our home. We can gladly, joyfully walk away from the things of this life. March into the fiery furnace if it's what our conviction necessitates because the glory for us is on the other side and not in this world. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get the lesson far better than most do in reading this story or being taught about this story. The health and prosperity guys love this story because it works out well in the end. Now I just got to tell you that the conclusion to this story It is not a determining factor in the goodness of our God. He is always good, always faithful, always right. The judge of all the earth always does the righteous thing, no matter what the outcome may look like from this perspective. So you know what happens, right? They throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. God saves them. In fact, it is observed by Nebuchadnezzar and others standing about that there's a fourth in the furnace And his appearance is one like the Son of Man. It seems as though Jesus is in the furnace with those Hebrew boys. And when they come out, their hair is not even singed. And their clothes don't smell like smoke. And the fire is is so fierce that it consumes even the ones that go near to cast them in. And yet God saves them out. Nebuchadnezzar finds foxhole faith as a response of that experience. He is so impressed by God's deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that for a brief season, he commits himself to God. But that commitment, as you know, would not last long. And in uh, a short period of time, we find Nebuchadnezzar on his fours, eating grass and living among the cattle. He essentially loses his mind as he grabs for the glory that belongs to God and to God alone. I mentioned to you a moment ago that there's a saying in our, in our culture, feet of clay, that comes from the book of Daniel. It's not the only saying in our culture that comes from the book of Daniel. The idea of seeing the writing on the wall likewise comes from Daniel chapter 5. If you would turn there. By Daniel 5, Nebuchadnezzar has died and he has been followed by a king of Babylon named here as Belshazzar. The Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 5 that King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of the wine, usually stories like that don't end well, (laughs) under the influence of the wine... Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone." At that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. But for the events that followed after, the king would have otherwise thought that he'd gotten a hold of bad liquor. But the Bible says that as the king watched the hand, that hand was writing and his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him that his hip joints shook and his knees knocked together. He likewise, as Nebuchadnezzar had before, called for wise men to interpret the writing on the wall to give some insight as to what this symbol meant for him. He's informed in verse 11 of chapter 5 that there was a man in this kingdom who had the spirit of the holy gods in him, as it's described there, and the king gives the command in verse 12 to summon Daniel to give an interpretation of what has just been experienced. Daniel is called into the end of the scene in verses 13 and following and begins an explanation of what has just unfolded before Belshazzar and this party in verse 22. Daniel says there, but you, his successor, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Even though you knew all of the experiences of Nebuchadnezzar before you, you've not humbled your heart before the God of heaven. Instead, you've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he sent the hand. And this writing was inscribed. This is the writing that was inscribed. Verse 25 says, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. It's an Aramaean phrase, and some of your translations will transliterate that a little bit differently. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Uparson. But they all mean the same. And the interpretation is given in verse 26. Mene means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed in the balance and found deficient. And Perez, which is the singular of parson in the writing on the wall, means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. For Belshazzar, we can now say, from our use of the phrase, the writing really was on the wall. For his want to grab at the glory that belonged to God and God alone, like Nebuchadnezzar before him, he would now be overthrown. And the Bible says in verse 29, Belshazzar gave an order and they clothed Daniel in purple. But in verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the birth of the Medo-Persian Empire as it relates to the area immediate to the city of of Babylon. The last passage that I want us to look at, and we'll look at this passage quickly, is in chapter 6. Chapter 6 is where Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. Daniel seems to consistently distinguish himself from other leadership in the land of Babylon. So understand that he he is running with a rather elite group. And even in the elite, elite group, the hand of God is so profoundly upon Daniel that he is, even among the distinguished, himself distinguished in that setting. The Bible says in verse 1, Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, stationed them throughout the realm, and over them three administrators, including Daniel. These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded, Daniel distinguished himself, this is one of my favorite verses in Daniel, Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit, so the king planned to set him over the whole realm. Most translations will render that Daniel had an excellent spirit or a spirit of excellence. It has reference to a number of things. One, it has reference to the fact that the spirit of God abides on Daniel, But it's much more practical than that. That's the spiritual uh, side or spiritual foundation of what's being observed about Daniel. The idea here is that Daniel does what he does with a spirit of excellence. That Daniel does what he is assigned to do well. That Daniel does what he is assigned to do right. Somewhere along the way, we've tried to make mediocrity a Christian virtue. Like, being okay with just being average somehow makes us more spiritual than other people. And I, 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 don't, I don't think anything could be further from the truth. In every area of our life, like with your children in academics, they ought to seek excellence because we are the children of God. We seek to bring glory to God in, in all that we do, in the case of our kids, in academics. Even in athletics, I think there's even a line of thinking in the athletic world today that being a follower of Christ is somehow a hindrance to your ability to be effective at whatever it is that you've been required or asked to do. When nothing could be further from the truth, we are committed to excellence in every area of our life, in the workplace. We are not hindered by our commitment to walk with Jesus, we are rather helped. Because we're not working unto our employers or for next Friday's paycheck, we are serving as unto God, laboring under the power provided by God's Holy Spirit. Daniel was a person of excellence, and I just got to say to you briefly tonight, this is an aside from Brother Wade, that we ought to be, in every area of our life, people of excellence. It ought to never be that a Christian is a sorry employee. It ought to never be that a Christian is less than earnest about giving a hundred percent at whatever it is that they've been assigned to do. And by virtue of this spirit of excellence, Daniel is able to distinguish himself even among those already enjoying a certain level of distinction. Well, sometimes distinction creates jealousy. And that's exactly what happens for those serving alongside Daniel. Now note that there are only three people who enjoy this level of leadership in Babylon. Under Belshazzar, there are essentially three governors or three overseers of three areas of leadership or three districts. And Daniel is among the three, a foreigner, a Jew on top of that. But because he had such a firm commitment to excellence, he finds himself rising to this place of ultimately sitting at the right hand of the king of Babylon. Those who envied him knew that they could find no charge or corruption against Daniel because he was a trustworthy man and there was no negligence or corruption to be found in him. But they say in verse 5, We'll never find any charge against Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God and they set in motion a conspiracy to have Belshazzar require of Daniel what he could not provide, namely his worship. Now there's something to be said for the way Daniel handles his business here. He's essentially told that he can't pray, and Daniel goes home the way he always did, and he prays. Now I want you to note, Daniel didn't start praying when the king said you can't pray. That's how Christians in America want to do. You tell them they can't do something spiritual and then they get really serious about being spiritual. I I can remember in the early days of walking with Jesus and there was the big hubbub about how steps involved and all. I was all in the middle of it. But I'm looking around at a bunch of people that ain't thought about keeping the Ten Commandments in a decade all up in arms about the removal of the commandments. (laughs) Daniel does not do what he does here in order to instigate an investigation from the government. Daniel simply does what he always does, and he goes into the privacy of his home, and he bows before God, and he prays, and they peer in the window to gather information or evidence against Daniel of his act of worship, praying three times a day. Now eventually he's brought back to Belshazzar, and Belshazzar regrets the decision that he's made, but the decision has been made, and Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, like Pilate, who was burdened over the decision to have Jesus crucified on the evening before his crucifixion, Belshazzar is burdened and grieved over the decision now made concerning Daniel in the lion's den. But he goes back the next morning, and lo and behold, Daniel is alive. And there are the lions, and there is Daniel, and he's all in one piece. And God worked miraculously in Daniel's experience. Yet another example Of maintaining one's convictions living in a strange and foreign land, even if it means jeopardizing one's own life. Now, there is very little likelihood that your life is going to be jeopardized for maintaining Christian convictions in the United States of America anytime in the near future. But the unfortunate reality is that far too often we compromise over far less significant things than our own life. And and I I think at least on some level a central message of Daniel is that even in exile that we are to walk faithfully before our God. Regardless of what the consequences of that may look like for us. Be faithful faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful. Would God have been any different if Belshazzar had thrown open the doors to that cellar prison and found that Daniel had been consumed to the bone overnight? He'd have been no less faithful. And if your conviction, your unwillingness to compromise means that that you fall victim to the lions. If in your case, God chooses not to close the mouths of lions, he will be no less faithful to you than he would have been otherwise. Do you know why? Because this world is not our home. And the prize of walking with Jesus cannot be found here. It just cannot be found here. Walk faithfully with your God. What awaits us is a crown of righteousness and a glory that is beyond comparison to anything that this world could afford. Strangers and pilgrims and sojourners, exiles, pursue the peace and prosperity of our Babylon. But don't ever make the mistake of falling for the confusion, falling for the delusion that this world is somehow our home. Our citizenship is elsewhere.